reading is Romans chapter 8, and it's verses 18 to 9, which, if you've got a blue Bible, is page 1135, 1135. So Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks very much indeed, Karen. Do keep her Romans 8 open. Um, As with last week, I'm going to be dotting round the Bible 
as we look at a, a topic rather than a particular passage, but Romans 8 there is probably where I'll be the most. All the passages will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, last week, in, in trying to encourage you to take notes, I accidentally insulted the congregation before starting my talk. So my apologies for that. If you were here last week, and I accidentally might have said you were pitiful, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mean to do that. And this week, to try and make it easier, um, I provided a handout. So hopefully it should be a handout on your seats that also has uh, the Bible references on as to where we're going. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a loving God, the God who's committed yourself to us, the God who is for us as we've sung and as we've heard read, the God who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son. Uh, please, our Father, help us to understand you aright, help us to understand ourselves and our world aright, uh, that we might know your love more fully and more intimately. In the Lord Jesus, for his name's sake. Amen. Now, when you uh, adopt a children, you get taught a little bit about attachment theory. Sounds a little bit clinical, something about a, a human limpet. But at its simplest level, it's about how we all need to feel loved so that we feel secure. We need to know that someone is for us. Whatever happens, whatever we do, however we treat them. We need to know that there is a safe relationship in our life, a person we can go back to at any time who will always accept us, who will always have us back. And the thing is, when a child attaches to someone, they don't cling. You'd think the sign of a close relationship would be an inability to let go, a grasping at the leg, a refusing to be parted from them. But though a child may well need to feel secure in their new surroundings, a sign that they're attached to an adult they're with is that they have confidence to go off and explore. You see, with a secure, loving relationship, the world becomes a manageable place, an exciting place, a place of new freedom. Now, we were created to be attached to God, to be secure in His love. That is where we find true freedom. That's what makes the world bearable. And that's why doubting God's love doesn't just affect the way we feel on a Sunday at church. It affects our experience of the whole of life. Now, now last week, we looked at the normality of doubt, particularly the normality of doubting that the good news about Jesus is simply true. We saw that the sinful nature of our minds means that we don't often want the Bible to be true. Uh, we actually want to rule our own lives, do what we want. Uh, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis describes his own experience of becoming a follower of Jesus in this less than joy-filled way. Listen to this quote. You must picture me alone in that room in college, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even from a second from work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Sometimes we just don't want to believe. But once we've started to follow Jesus Christ, no one wants to doubt God's love. But, but lots of us do. Or we can doubt that God could love us because of the way we feel about ourselves. We feel we're so bad that we put ourselves beyond the love of God. And we can doubt that God loves us because of our circumstances. 
We can feel that our lives are so bad that clearly God just doesn't care about us anymore. And as a pastor, I have conversations pretty much every week with people who are doubting that God loves them. So this evening, we're going to look at three ways that we we come to that doubt and and three ways that we may be able to deal with it. And like last week, I'm going to leave probably as much unsaid as I'm going to say. And so please uh, do come and ask me questions afterwards. Do email me questions. Or maybe we're going to have a question time next week. Save up questions. Though if you are feeling tonight that you're someone who God doesn't love, can I encourage you to talk to someone as soon as possible about that? Here's the first thing to see. Does God love me? Well, we need to remember our past. Remember our past. And we're going to start with our sin, our rejection of God. Now, that might seem a strange place to start if you're feeling unloved, to say, well, if you're feeling unloved, it may well be that you first need to remember just how unlovable you really are. See, one of the most common reasons that we feel unloved is our sense of entitlement, that feeling that people should treat us in a particular way. Incredibly, we can make demands upon God, that he owes us. You see, nothing kills our sense of God's love for us quicker than our own self-righteousness, that, that we deserve to be loved. Uh, Jesus was at the home of a, of a Pharisee called Simon, a, a Jewish religious leader, who was frowning upon the way that Jesus welcomed a woman who was probably the local prostitute. She'd wept over Jesus' feet. She'd wiped away her tears with her hair. And Simon thought, this is a disgrace. Uh, If this man was a prophet, he'd know this woman was a sinner. So Jesus tells him a story. It comes in Luke chapter 7. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he pointed out to Simon, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. See, the amount we feel love for God and love from God are inseparable. And they'll largely depend on how much we feel we've been forgiven. It's not that Simon the Pharisee didn't need much forgiveness and this woman did need a lot of forgiveness. It's Simon the Pharisee didn't feel he needed much forgiveness. Whereas this woman knew the scale of her sin. And therefore she felt the scale of God's love for her in the Lord Jesus in forgiving her. See, one of the quickest ways to doubt the love of God is to forget our sin. And the way that we will know we've forgotten our sin is that we'll be quicker to see other people's faults than we're to see our own. You'll think that the reason you're feeling down is because they've treated you so badly. Or the reason that you're feeling spiritually dry is because, well, church isn't what it should be. Or the reason that God feels distant is because, well, he hasn't blessed you in the way you expect him to with your spirit, his spirit. You see, everything is someone else's problem. But in the end, the most likely reason that we will feel unloved by God is we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. See, nothing kills your sense of God's love quicker than becoming a little Pharisee. So we need to remember our past sin. A good place to start might be 
asking, well, what, what was I like before I came to know Christ? Or what would I be like if I hadn't come to know Christ? Or maybe even that simple question, how would I feel about myself if my friends knew everything I'd said and thought and done in the last week, let alone Christ knowing that about me? Remember our sin. And very importantly then, remember our Savior. You see, the woman loved Jesus. We'll obviously not feel loved by God if the only thing we remember is how unlovable we are. We also need to remember how much he has loved us despite that. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, remember your sin? You were powerless, ungodly, sinners. Remember your Savior? But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And every human illustration we have of the cross, all those stories that I can tell you to make your heart leap of men laying down their lives for one another in the war or in other situations, fail to capture this. Because they're all about people dying for people who are not that bad, or they love, or are their children, or are their mates. You cannot find a human illustration of someone dying for someone who hates them, who rejects them, who treats them badly. Only the Son of God does that for us. The only innocent, the perfectly loving, the completely pure, the totally righteous, the extravagantly kind, creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe, the very one we've offended, the one we have rejected, the one we have ignored, the one who we have grieved, the one who is our rightful Lord, and the one who will be our judge, stood silently and was falsely accused. He let men strip him and hit him and spit upon him. He laid his back bare so that the skin, the flesh itself, could be stripped away by a cruel whip. He stretched wide his arms as he gave breath to the very man by the power of his will who nailed his hands to a wooden cross. He hung in agony for hours. And yet none of that was his greatest suffering. That was only a, a physical display that, that hinted at the spiritual torment of bearing the righteous anger of God himself, an anger that we deserve. No wonder John says in his letter in 1 John 4, this is love, not, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, that is the heart of the Christian faith. We are desperately unlovable, but we are extraordinarily loved. If you're not a Christian here this evening, that is the heart of what is being offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. An unquenchable love by God for those who deserve his righteous anger. 
a love that gives his only son. Remember the past, your sin and your saviour. Remembering God's rescue is vital for God's people throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5 tells the people, remember that you are slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the cross. Now that, that actually flies in the face of our culture's view about how to feel loved. If you look up how to feel loved or the need for love on Google, on the first page of results, you'll find almost as much about loving yourself as being loved by others. See, our culture says the key to feeling love is to realize how lovable you are. Our kids are taught that at school every day. You can do it. You're fantastic. You're special. You're lovable. And we imbibe that message too. All I need to do is realize that I am worthy of love, then I'll be able to love myself. My problem is I keep providing myself with more than enough evidence. That's just not true. This has been one of the things that's caused me personally to doubt God's love over the last few years. See, I have wanted God to make me someone I love, to make me someone I can accept, someone who's not disappointed or disgraced by my own behavior. And the problem is he doesn't. Because he doesn't want me to love myself. He wants me to see how much he has loved me in Christ. And that's a radically different thing. He wants me to be amazed that someone loves me as unlovely as I am. The converted slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, famously said towards the end of his life, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Or the German reformer Martin Luther wisely said, nothing ages more quickly than gratitude. If we doubt God's love, we need to remember our sin and remember our saviour. But secondly, we need to be realistic about the present. Remember the past, but be realistic about the present. We need to be realistic about the world we live in. You see, when we become Christians, we bring all sorts of presuppositions about life. Things that we assume about our life without actually even thinking about them. Most of them have been absorbed by the, the way we've been brought up, what we've been taught at school, what we've read or watched on the telly over the years. And one of the deepest held presuppositions of human beings is we can make life work. That actually we can pull off a day when existence, of existence where, where we'll be healthy, where, where we'll be happy. And that the human race itself will in the end sort out the problems of the world if we're just given enough time. Things will always get better. Now that, that was a belief of a philosopher called Hegel. Now his ideas were largely torpedoed in the 20th century by two world wars where human beings found that we had brilliant new technology and then we used it to brutally kill millions of people. But, but the world wars are quite a long way away. And so we live with a sort of neo, a new Hegelianism that, that we believe technology is going to sort things out. New is always better. You have in your pocket a, a phone that's thousands of times more powerful than the computer that sent a man to the moon. So we think technology is going to sort it out. And our pervading Western culture now is one of self-belief 
in our ability to fix the problems of the world. Now, when you couple that with a belief that God loves me and he wants the best for me, our faith can be thrown into turmoil when the world doesn't work. When life goes wrong, we doubt God's love. And we need to understand what the Bible says about the reality of our world. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is summarizing a life following Jesus where you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're certain of his love, and he tells you what it'll feel like. Uh, Listen to Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Do you see how creation is described? Subjected to frustration, in bondage to decay. That's been the world ever since the fall of humanity, back in Genesis 3, when God cursed creation. Death has reigned. We are decaying. I'm afraid it's true for all of us. I have less hair on my head than I had 10 years ago. Some days my knees hurt, simply because they do. It's why I've had good friends drop dead in their 50s. It's why I've taken the funerals of babies. It's why we struggle with disease and ill health, both mental and physical. The world we live in is not the world we're finally created to enjoy. It's a cursed world under God's judgment. In fact, in one way, we tend to have the world the wrong way round. If you think about the way humanity treats God, the miracle is, the odd thing, if you like, is not that things go wrong from day to day. The amazing thing is that anything works, that God actually sustains a good world despite the way we daily ignore and reject him. It's worth saying that, that some Christians do believe that God will heal all our diseases, as his people, that he'll, he'll take away the problems of this life. Sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel. I think people in this country tend to believe more in the health rather than the wealth side, that, that maybe we might be healed. But, but can I say, there is no New Testament expectation that God will heal all Christians of all diseases. Uh, Jesus, in his ministry, didn't heal everyone who came to him. And we have examples like the Apostle Paul writing to his young follower, Timothy, about his stomach problems, saying, well, take a little bit of wine for it. Paul himself has a lifelong problem. He calls it his thorn in the flesh, which may have been a physical issue. Now, the expectation of the Bible is Christians will suffer physical and mental ill health like everyone else. Yes, God in his sovereignty can heal, and he does heal, with and without the use of modern medicine. But that is not our right. It's done for his purposes when he sees fit. You see, normal life in a world where God loves us is a world of suffering in bondage to decay. And in fact, the Bible expects Christians to suffer more, not less than everyone else, because we'll also suffer persecution at the hands of a world that rejects Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 20, if they persecuted me they will persecute you also. That's why at the end of our readings in Romans 8, Paul reassures Christians. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, following Jesus will in some ways make life harder. It is because God has loved you in his son that you will be treated like his son. And that may well result in us crying out to God, do you love me? That's what happened to King David in Psalm 13. He said in verse 1, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? You know, we need to be realistic about our world. It's a world of hardship and suffering, even for those who God loves dearly. But we also need to be realistic about our feelings. As we saw last week, we can't trust our minds that we don't think straight about God because of sin. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that we don't feel straight about God either. Everyone, don't they, has emotional swings in life. We have doubts about love and, and the world around us. And when it happens, our emotions can assault our trust in the fact that God loves us. The Old Testament prophet Elijah experienced something like this. He won a great victory over the prophets of Baal. You might remember that on Mount Carmel. But afterwards, things didn't go exactly as he was hoping. He skedaddled off to Queen Jezebel and found she was still on the throne and told him that she was going to kill him by this time tomorrow. And we read this in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. See, Elijah doesn't feel God is for him. He's exhausted, he's spent, and he's had enough. The Lord's answer, sleep, food, and a bit of truth. An angel comes and provides Elijah with bread and water. And after a kip, God takes Elijah to, to Mount Horeb, where he explains how he's still in control and how he's kept 7,000 faithful people in Israel. Sometimes we might say, I just don't feel anything. I just don't feel that God loves me. And we'd be absolutely right. That is exactly what we are feeling. But that is not the truth about God. It may well be that in that situation, we need something as simple as rest, a good diet, and friends around us to encourage us. It may well be there are deeper psychological issues, pain from our past, a distressing situation in the present, emotional scars that won't heal, that mean we need specialist counseling in that situation. But the way that we feel about God is not always an accurate reflection of the way that he feels about us. David goes on in, in Psalm 13. Remember how... God, his feeling has left him. He goes on to remember how God is committed to him. Look on me and answer me. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You see, there's, there's no indication that David's circumstances have changed at all. He's sure that his enemies are going to rejoice when he fails. But despite that, David repeats the truth of God's steadfast covenant love. He, he looks at the past and the promises of God and he finds his joy in them. Promises that mean he's certain about his future. The famous Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said when we feel this doubt about God's love, we need to listen to ourselves less and to preach to ourselves more. In other words, to speak the truth of what the Bible says about the God who loves us into our emotional turmoil. Because we've seen that, that when we doubt God's love, we need to remember the past. We need to be realistic about the present. And lastly, we need to rejoice in the future. To rejoice in the future. You see, if, if a realistic view of our, our present life is that I'm in bondage to decay, and I'm going to be persecuted by the world, and I'm often going to feel unloved by God because of my deeply screwed up emotions, that doesn't really sound like a great deal, does it? I mean, if I was trying to sell someone, that is the Christian life tonight, I could understand why you would think that doesn't sound like a great deal. But Christians are people of hope. And hope in the Bible is faith looking forward. It's trusting God's promises for our future. And uh, if our hope is set in this life alone, if the future we dream of is healthy kids, a financially secure retirement, and finally getting some more time to do our hobbies, then we will always be disappointed. We'll always be disappointed. Because that's not the reality of the world we live in. And we'll be disappointed in God because he doesn't appear to have read our life plan. But actually 99.999% of the benefits of the Christian life are not in this life, but in the life to come. Our hope is in a glorious future when we will see Jesus face to face. When we'll know him even as he knows us. When we will only feel God's love perfectly. When we will love him perfectly and all other people. That, that's a future to long for. Uh, listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 8 again. Romans 8 and verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. It is hope in the face of groaning that sustains us when we doubt God's love. And Graham Bynum writes in his little book, Heart Attitudes, which I just got off my shelf as I was preparing. I recommend it to you, talking about the attitudes of our heart in the Christian life, he writes of a, a young woman, Jane, in his church who has recently lost her baby. He says this, she and her husband are devastated and the experience has brought questions and doubts. But throughout, Jane has kept her eyes on her future hope. She knows that God is good and she can trust him. 
She wrote a f- note to friends recently. I'm missing my little girl and waiting for Jesus to make everything right. God's love is so great that he's going to give us something far better than the best life we can think of in this fallen, decaying, sin-cursed world. See, lots of people doubt God's love because they actually have a too small view of his promises. He's going to fill us with a love and a joy that is beyond our wildest dreams. And whilst we wait, we wait in the certain knowledge that his love for us never fails. In Psalm 33, the psalmist writes, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, in him, not our circumstances and not ourselves, in him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. See, David, as he writes this psalm, knows his trust in God's unfailing love in the present is tied to his hope in God's promises for the future. Faith looking forward sees the great love of God, that he's taking us home to be with him. Here is not home. There is home in a perfect new creation with him forever. That that's the longing that Jesus himself expressed in prayer the night before he died. He prayed this in John 17 about believers, about you and me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. Like a lover longing to be reunited with his beloved. Jesus wants you to be with him in glory. He prays that his father in heaven would take you there to be with him. And he will do everything necessary to get you there. He's going to go to the cross the next day. You see, in the end, our doubt of God's love isn't actually conquered by our efforts to correct our own thinking. Our doubt is conquered by the Lord Jesus, the one who continues to be with us. That's what he prays. The one who continues to be in us. The one who says, I'm going to make the love of my Father known to you day by day. See, the God whose love we doubt is the God whose love is so great that in his Son he has said he will never let us go, however much we doubt him. And he, the one that we struggle to believe, is actually the solution himself because of his great love to our own unbelief. That's why Martin Luther prayed like this, and this is the prayer I'm going to finish with tonight. It's uh, on the screen, and it's on your sheet. 
Maybe in a, a moment's quiet, I'm going to read out this prayer. Have a look at the prayer yourself, and maybe you'd like to echo it in the quiet of your own heart. Luther prays. Dear Lord, although I am sure of my position, I am unable to sustain it without thee. Help thou me, or I am lost. In Jesus' name, amen.